Hi there, I'm Sean Eckford, member of the board here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcast. 2017 off to a great start today. The weather's been cooperating. It's also our 35th anniversary festival. And before we get into some of the literary happenings of today, I caught up with our festival president, Gene Bennett, just to find out a little bit about a 35th anniversary initiative we're doing called Literacy for a Lifetime. And actually, the first question I had for Gene is, what are we actually calling it? Because if you're at the festival this weekend, you may hear it referred to by a few different names. The overall initiative is called Literacy for a Lifetime. The specific fund is Legacy of Literacy. That's the one that the festival holds. But the reason we're calling it Literacy for a Lifetime is we know that there may be people who want to establish a new endowment in uh, memory of a family member or something like that. So that's why there's kind of two pieces to this. The Our Legacy uh, Fund and the potential for people to establish a new fund. Now the reason again that we're calling this Literacy for a Lifetime is we see that there's kind of three key pieces that are important. One, it's to really include the work that we do with children and youth in the schools. That some of uh, the most moving and powerful interactions that the festival has facilitated are those between writers and children who encounter writers in the schools. Whether it's about children learning to use words uh, in written form themselves, or whether it's about a child who, through the story that a writer tells, learns that they are not alone. So it's a piece of that beginning work. A second part of this is really understanding that fundamentally literacy is about being able to understand and engage with the world around us. And it doesn't matter what our age is. We are still gathering information and knowledge and looking for the language that helps us sometimes articulate the things that are part of the world around us. So I see that as one of the things I come to this festival for. I find writers who help me reflect in new ways on the experiences and the things that I see in the world. And finally, if anything ever did happen to the festival, all of those funds stay in this community and would benefit other literacy initiatives. So let's talk a bit uh, about the mechanics, because obviously as, as a charity, we'll, we'll accept a donation. We make a little revenue off the ticket sales. Why is an endowment so important? Well, what the endowment does is gives us that steady stream of funding that we can count on. So it sits with the community foundation, they invest it and manage it for us, and we're assured then of every year we know that there's a reasonably predictable amount of money that we will get. So one of the things that we're looking at right now is if we get to that million dollars, or when we get to that million dollars, we're looking at about $40,000 a year in income that comes to the festival for us to do this important community and educational outreach, to ensure that we can continue to bring writers from across the country, from the territories, from wherever. And we don't have to rely on either government funding, which can shift year to year, or to whatever donors are feeling like that particular year. So some years donors are very generous, some years less so. We have a more predictable income stream. So 
what's the ask? Because we are keying this to the 35th anniversary, and I'm seeing a lot of numbers starting in 35. Yeah. What are we hoping people will do? So, so I think it, it was wonderful. Len Pakalek uh, really articulated this well at our volunteer dinner. He said, you know, some people can only do $35. Some, you know, that may be what they can offer. So if you can do 35 this year, that's great. If you can do $35 a month for 35 months, that's fantastic. If you can do 350, 3500 or God knows, 35000 we welcome it all. As you can imagine, there was lots going on on day one, and there's no way we're going to get to it all. We, we opened up with Ian Hamilton, who's the author of a series of crime stories featuring Ava Lee, a forensic accountant of all things, of Chinese heritage, who's also lesbian, and Hamilton, who's definitely neither of those things, did talk to the audience a bit about uh, questions he's faced around appropriation. Because you've almost set a record for it here, right? And she was fearful that the Chinese-Canadian community might take offense. She was afraid the lesbian community might take offense. And uh, uh, so it turned out that the... uh, Lesbian community is one of my biggest fan bases. And, but I think it's because I tr- the way I treat the subject in the book is very respectful. But j- just not respectful, it's treated in the most natural, matter-of-fact way imaginable. There's no angst, there's no drama. Her sex life is just part of her life like everyone else is part, part of their life. And, and I've been nominated for several Lambda Awards for the best lesbian novel of the year. <laughs> and I... I went to New York for the ceremony, and it was wonderful, a great time. And then the Chinese-Canadian communities, the same thing. Uh, when we launched last year in Toronto at Indigo, I think we had 200 people at the launch, and I bet you 50 were Chinese-Canadian. Mainly women, I have to say. So. But uh, it's totally supportive. I've done Chinese TV, I've done Chinese radio, I've done all, all kinds of things. And people are just wonderful. And... and uh, but the, the, what the Chinese women like is they think I've captured the family dynamic very precisely. The, the relationship between Ava and her mother in particular, they all identify with that. They all, they all see, see themselves in, in that, which is nice. Among the nonfiction authors we have with us at this year's festival is Jeff Dembicki, a journalist from the Vancouver area who's just written the book, Are We Screwed? How a New Generation is Fighting to Survive Climate Change. And I caught up with him after his reading earlier this afternoon. I've been writing about climate change for, for quite a few years now. And before I had kind of conceived of this idea for the book, I, I reached a point where I thought, well, what, like, one new thing could possibly be written about the issue that that hasn't been said already. Um, and then I was actually having conversations with my agent Trina, who is just standing right over there, who your listeners won't be able to see. And and she and she was like, "Well, why don't you tell the book from from your own perspective, right. um, the perspective of of a younger person who's kind of contemplating the future of the world?" And and it was, it was kind of an epiphany, and it, it seems so simple now, but it was a big intellectual leap to take at the time. And so I, I, I started kind of going around the world and, and, and speaking with people my age who were dealing with climate change, and then I realized that um, you know, there was this completely new perspective that nobody had really taken seriously. And so that's, 
that's when I realized that there was a book there, and, um, and that's, that's why I'm here today, talking to you. So, which brings me to, to the obvious question, are you writing this to teach people like me, and let's face it, you look out in the audience, it's a little north of millennial, mostly at this festival, or are you writing it to reflect the view back to people of your generation, or sort of somewhere in the middle? Um, I, I think it's, I think it's both. Um, when, when I was originally conceiving um, this book and doing some of the reporting on it, I, I imagined that there would be interest, hopefully, among people of all ages. Obviously, I, I would love to see people my age get, get riled up and organized politically and make change out in the world. But I also think that there you know, are a lot of exciting things happening among young people that are the direct result of, of actions that baby boomers or people from other generations have taken. And in my talk, I, I used the example of Greenpeace, for example. So Greenpeace was, was founded in Vancouver in the 60s and is now arguably the most recognizable environmental organization on the planet. Um, and the majority of, of people working in its Vancouver office now are in their 20s and 30s. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot in here for people of all ages to read. And I, I think it's always useful to be presented with kind of new and exciting and challenging ideas. Um, you know, whatever age you are. Now, you answered the title question at the end, but I wanted to ask you about your choice of the word survive as opposed to say stop, reverse, fix. Why survive climate change? Is it because it's too late to do anything else? No, I, I wanted to, with with the title especially, I, I really wanted to convey the, the sense of urgency that, that so many people feel about climate change and, and particularly um, people of younger generations who are really trying to think through the catastrophic impacts and and stop, delay, prevent. Those are all kind of abstracted words that that, that speak about something that's kind of remote and interesting, but but maybe not as urgent as some of the other problems we're dealing with. And I I use the word survive to to convey what's really at stake and and to show people emotionally that this is. This is a challenge that's happening right now, and it's, it's really of the utmost importance. I've got one last question for you, and it's an easy one. Now, now, that, now that we've put you to work, you've got some time to relax and check out the rest of the festival. Is there anyone you're particularly uh, keen to see while you're here? I'm really interested in seeing the, the presentation of Bev Sellers, and I think what, what I didn't really make clear enough, I don't think in my presentation, is the absolutely vital role that Indigenous peoples in Canada have played in, in all of these, these fights and, and debates. And um, the reason the, the NDP um, Green government rejected the Kinder Morgan pipeline, for example, was in a large part played um, was in a large part because of the activism of indigenous people living in Burrard Inlet and up and down the coast. And so I'm just, I'm really um, fascinated by the writing that, that Bev has done and I, I want to learn more about her perspective.
One of our sold-out events on day one featured author Joy Kagawa, who recently wrote a memoir called Gently to Nagasaki. She was on our stage in conversation with Catherine Gretzinger, and Catherine asked her a little bit about making that transition from poetry and fiction to outright memoir. Your poetry is clearly living in that trench. Trust, truth, um, in, in these poignant words that you use. This is different. This is a memoir. So this is exposure in a whole other kind of way. It's not just about thoughts, feelings, wonderings. It's actually about life. So how did you skip that and, and, and enter into that whole new space? How, how did you skip out of the, the realm of um, the, the imagined world and into the realm of oh, this is my life and I'm going to put yeah. this out there? You know, fiction is so easy compared to um, truth, reality, our lives. In fiction, you can hide. In memoirs, you can't unless you just leave things out. If you leave things out, how is it a memoir? <laughs> so... Um, how did I go there? Well, uh, one day, as I was going back and forth between fact and fiction, fact and fiction, and going crazy because ambivalence drives you crazy, uh, I said, all right, the very next thing I do, I am going to stay with. And the very next thing that I was doing was memoir. And I was so sorry I had said that I was going to stay with that. <laughs> because it was hell. I mean, culturally, the word I in the Japanese culture The word I is uh, invisible. You do not egotistically stand there and say that word. So to be talking about myself in this way, it was kind of disgusting. And so filled with this self-disgust, I was talking about these things, and it was so hard to walk along with all of this. It was hell for a lot of reasons, and the more I realized that it was hell that I was in, the more I knew I had to be there. It was like the forest fire blazing, and the only really safe place when you're there, if you can't outrun it, is you go into it, and you find that place that has become ash, and there you are safe because it's all burned around you. So in a way, that's what I was doing. I was going into what could not be said, what I could not say, things for which I was going to be rejected, and I knew it, Um, but I was going. And now I think that um, hell is the road to heaven for some reason. I, I think it's not to be avoided, it's to be embraced. This whole world and all the hells in it, these are real things. So I think it's important to embrace whatever is real. Well, that's going to do it for this first episode of our Daily Festival of the Written Arts podcast. Looking forward to another great day weather-wise and audience-wise tomorrow. A couple of sellouts on Saturday, including Pat Carney and Amber McMillan and Charlotte Gray, but sold out doesn't necessarily mean sold out. Drop by the office. Someone may have a ticket they're needing to get rid of. You can always listen in the gardens here at Rockwood. We've got a great sound system. So... You just never know what'll happen. Worth popping down if you don't have plans. Take care, and we'll see you tomorrow.